2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll be um, this morning. Before I moved to Greenville, um, my wife and I and my son, we lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and I worked for a company that stocked nuts and bolts for Home Depot stores. And I would go around to different stores in Atlanta, Georgia, and I would meet all kinds of unique people. Um, one of my favorite places to go uh, outside of Atlanta was um, Athens, Georgia. I had to work the Athens, Georgia Home Depot store for a year, and I would meet all kinds of uh, unique people in Athens. And Athens was sort of, it's sort of a band, there's a big band culture. I think REM started in Athens. And so there's a lot of different bands that kind of go through Athens. And so you'll meet like really hippie kind of people there in Athens. And one of the ladies that I would talk to um, was this lady probably in her late 50s, early 60s. And she was just that stereotypical lady who's kind of lived the rock lifestyle in the 70s, right? Like uh, spiky red hair, crazy like earrings with skulls on them, you know, just uh, uh, crazy weird like funky glasses that are like the old school like 1920s look to them, but like kind of hipster, vintage look to it. And so she and I, she would always work in my department. We would talk, and she would always talk about music. And that was just what she loved. And she knew a ton of things about uh, 80s punk bands. She loved bands like the Ramones and all these other 80s punk bands that she would talk about, how she used to date some of these different guys or whatever in the band. And I'd hear all these crazy, you know, drug stories that she'd tell me. And, and I remember one time we started talking about which what was a favorite show, favorite concert that you ever have been to. And, I'm, I'm, and, and that day for me, it was U2. I got to see U2 with my wife. I got to see them in Atlanta, Georgia. It was an incredible show. And I was telling her all about it. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen them hundreds of times. And I'm like, okay. She's like, yeah, I got the back. I, I, I was actually backstage in, in this place. And then when they did Boy, I was backstage here. And then she said, I used to tour. I go around with them, tour with them. I'm like, all oh, right, you know. And like, well, how did you get? How did you get all of these concerts? You know, I'm, I'm asking her questions. She's like, oh, I know them personally. I'm like, okay, you work at Home Depot, okay? You don't know them personally. And we begin to talk more. I didn't say that. But I'm just thinking, okay, all right. And she didn't tell me stories. And she's she's dropping their names like first name basis. And she's saying like she's talking about Adam Clayton. So she's like, who's the bass player? She's like, Adam and I used to do. And Larry, who's the drummer, Larry Mullen. And I, okay, we used to do this. We used to go to these parties. And we've been to these places. And I'm like, okay, that's just not. And like every and then so two or three weeks in a row, she's telling me these stories, and I'm listening. And I think she's picking up on my awkward like nod and ha ha ha. You know, like he does doesn't believe me kind of way to communicate. And so the next week, she comes in with this giant scrapbook. And she says, I have something to show you. I'm like, okay. And she pulls out the scrapbook, and it's got all of these backstage passes to all of these concerts that she's been to, that she's been telling me that she's been to. But I'm like, I'm still going, okay, you can get those on eBay. Like, right? I'm still, like, doubtful. And then, then it gets even further into the book, and then there's pictures of her and these, these you know, performers, Adam Clayton. It's her with Larry Mullen. She's like, this is me and Adam after a party. And they're, you know, they're hammered in this picture, and they're there together. And she's showing me these, these pictures. And I'm going, okay, this is, that was not Photoshopped. I'm looking really close, right? And then she pulls out the very end of the scrapbook. She pulls out this Christmas card. And it was written to her. It has her name. 
and it says, I hope you're doing well. We got your gift. We loved your gift. Thank you so much. We've been thinking about you. We miss seeing you. Sincerely, Bono and Allie. And I was like, you win. You got me. Checkmate, right? You got me. And I remember thinking, okay, this lady, for, for, for the longest time, I'm thinking she's crazy. She, she thinks that these things happen. She's had acid trips, and she thinks that she saw Bono and all of these people. But then she begins to show me the legitimacy of her story. She sounded crazy, but once I saw proof and evidence, I knew that she was real. The book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's way of dealing with a church who thinks that he is absolutely crazy. 2 Corinthians is a book that people, who, uh, 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 written to, from Paul to a people who he walked through life with. He led many of them to Christ. He discipled them. He implanted elders in the church, grew the church, led the church, and now they are doubting his ministry, and ultimately they're doubting the Lord Jesus and the work of the gospel. So what Paul does is in 2 Corinthians, he's going to defend himself and his ministry. But he's not going to do that in the way that we would, where we might be tempted to prove how great we are. We might be tempted to prove uh, or or react out of our insecurities. We might be able, wanting to prove how competent or how educated or how experienced we are. He doesn't do that at all. Paul does this. He defends his apostleship. He defends his ministry. He defends the gospel by reminding the church at Corinth, the legitimacy of what the gospel does in a person's life. So what does the gospel do in a person's life? The gospel makes us a new people. The gospel gives us a new identity. And so as Paul is communicating this message, we need to know what's happening. So before we get into this book, before we get into 2 Corinthians, I don't want us just to sort of jump in and not give you some background. So I'm gonna, it's going to take some work to kind of give us some background on what's happening. But if you don't do that, you're kind of walking in to the middle of a conversation. And you don't want to walk into the middle of a conversation. You want to know the context, what's happening, what's happening before, what exactly Paul is addressing. And so I am going to read this passage in 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But then I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm explain the conversation that is happening. And then I'm going to want to get to the heart of really what it means to be made new. 2 Corinthians, verse 1. You guys ready? Oh, no, that was bad. You guys ready? All right, all right, let's do this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's important. We're going to get there in a minute. And Timothy, our brother, to the church of Corinth, that to the church of God that is in is at Corinth, with all the saints who are uh, in the hall of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us. In all of our affliction, so that we may be able to uh, comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort 
which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, right out of the gate, we see who wrote it. It's the Apostle Paul, and we see who it's written to. It's written to the church of Corinth. He also mentions this whole of Achaia, which is most likely pockets of believers who began to gather as a result of the success of the church of Corinth. And Paul also mentions Timothy, who's Timothy. Timothy was a disciple. He was a younger convert of Paul's. He traveled along with Paul, and he had a unique relationship with this church at Corinth because um, he actually was there when the church of Corinth began with Paul sharing the gospel. And he would, Timothy would have been likely the person that would have hand-delivered this message to Paul. Paul would have planted the church, he would have continued, he would have moved on, and he would have been writing letters to and corresponding to the church at Corinth. And so Timothy most likely was the one who was sort of the mediator between the church at Corinth and Paul. He was communicating with some of the leaders there, he was communicating with Paul and telling them what's going on, and so here's the relationship. But in Acts 18, if you want to get a full picture of how this church began, Acts 18 tells us the story about how this church, the church at Corinth, began. What you'll see is Paul and Timothy. You'll also see Silas, who's another one of Paul's disciples, and they preach the gospel in Corinth in Acts 18. You see some people hate the gospel, and then you see some people respond to it, and then that's how the church began. We know that it was a pretty remarkable place to start a church. Corinth was a port city, There were a lot of travelers coming in and out of Corinth, which means there was a lot of cultures represented in Corinth. Um, It was well known for practicing polytheism, which is the worship of many gods. It was a strong Greek Greek culture there. Some, uh, well, uh, history tells us that um, the temple of Aphrodite was there, which is the goddess of love. So it was a very sexually driven city. Many sexual sins were represented there, prostitution, sex trade, a lot of the things that you see even in our culture, sadly, today, were happening pervasively in Corinth. Uh, The the biggest comparison I can give you to Corinth was uh, in early 2000s, I was able to take a trip to East Asia, and I went, I spent a couple of days in Bangkok, Thailand. That's sort of like what Corinth would be. Bangkok, Thailand, you walk around the streets and you see idols being worshipped on the street. You see young prostitutes from the ages of 11, 12, 13 years old. You see travelers all around Thailand with all of these different cultures represented. You'd see American businessmen walking with young prostitutes on each arm. And it will make you angry when you see it. But it's this perverse city. And this is where Paul plants the gospel. Why? Because he believed that if he planted the gospel here, it would infect an entire region. If he planted the gospel here, it would, make, it would change the way that culture viewed God. Corinth was said most likely had around 100,000 people close to the population of Greenville. And history tells us that the temple of Aphrodite would house around 1,000 prostitutes. And this would be, honestly, there's not many churches in Greenville with a thousand people. But here there's a temple in a city that's the same size of Greenville with a thousand prostitutes. Where travelers could come and pay for sex. That is Corinth. 
Corinth was catered around travelers and sailors where people could come into the city and literally indulge and do whatever they wanted to do. And there was actually a statement that was said to describe a promiscuous person in that day. They would say, to live like a Corinthian. It's almost like saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it's to live like a Corinthian. Those people live like Corinthians. They do whatever they want. And it's funny, when I drive down the road, I see a sign maybe out in the sticks of North Carolina. I'll see like, Corinth Baptist Church. That's not a good name, all right? You may not have known the historical context there before you put that on the sign, okay? Because Acts 18 tells us the story. With Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they hit the city on the head with the gospel. And we see a handful of people who become believers in this very progressive and immoral city. And Acts 18 actually tells us, as this church starts and as these believers are formed, it becomes this multicultural, multi-ethnic, beautiful picture of the gospel. You have Jews and you have Greeks intertwining, becoming believers, doing life together in a community, a gospel community. And we're told in Acts 18 verse 11 that Paul stayed there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So as Paul plants, he stays there for six months, and the church embraced the gospel. You actually begin to see Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul begins to sort of applaud the church by telling them how he's seen the gospel work in their life, how he's seen the Holy Spirit work in their life. And they be, but, but here's what happens. As Paul leaves, he's there for six months, he plants the gospel there, sees all this wonderful work happen, this community of probably 40, 50, 60 or so believers gathered in this perverse city for the very first time, the gospel light is being shown. Paul's there for six months, he goes away, and then what happens as he's gone away, he hears that this beloved church of his begins to compromise. They begin to compromise on the gospel. They begin to lose sight of what's important they begin to fall into theological problems. Some of the people in the church begin to deny whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Others begin to have a, a, an unhealthy view of what conversion is. Some believe that you can be a believer and continue to sin. Others would have an un, unhealthy, an unbiblical view of suffering. They believe that any type of suffering was bad. And if you were suffering, that means you were doing something wrong. Therefore, Paul, who suffered for the gospel, can't be legit because he suffers. And so they had all these theological problems, but it also led to in, like, in, crazy immoral problems. There were some people that Paul had heard, and you'll see this recorded in 1 Corinthians, getting drunk on communion wine. All right? If you got drunk on communion wine, something's wrong. All right? So instead of remembering the sacrificial atonement of Christ, which is what communion is supposed to do, people were going there and indulging. This is, people, this is happening in the church. There were sexual sins that were taking place. There was a man who had a rela relationship, a sexual relationship with someone in his family. And no one in the church is saying anything about it. That's 1 Corinthians 5. And so you're going to see over and over again, instead of this church being influenced by in, or being an influence on the culture, the church is influenced by the culture. And a lot of churches begin strong, but they lose sight and they lose focus on the gospel. Lord, let that not be us, right? 
And so what does Paul do? Well, Paul writes several letters to this church, the church at Corinth. We see we have written copies of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but by the way, 1st Corinthians isn't actually the first letter. Um, We just have two letters recorded in God's inspired word, but Paul actually wrote several letters to the church at Corinth. We know this because in 1st Corinthians 5, he refers back to his previous letter. So Paul would have spent a lot of time dealing with the theological and the moral problems in this church. And so um, Paul, in his correspondence, he's writing back and forth to this uh, household named Chloe's household. It was a solid group of believers in the church those who were faithful to the gospel. He's getting word back from how the church of Corinth is doing spiritually, and then he's communicating to them to communicate to the entire body. Imagine being Paul in this situation. Imagine planting the gospel in a place that's never heard it. We just sent a missionary out earlier last year, or in the middle of last year, to East Asia. He's planting the gospel in an unreached area. This is exactly what Paul did. There's no gospel community in hundreds of thousands of miles of where you are. This is what Paul does. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians around 53, 54 AD, and he hopes to untangle the problems in the church. And this letter that Paul would have delivered in 1 Corinthians would have been read publicly in front of the whole congregation, in front of the 40 or 60 or so people. And we can assume that that letter, 1 Corinthians, would have made some impact. But what happens next? It was a group of people in Corinth or even in the church that didn't like what Paul is trying to say. So in about a year's time, a group of people in Corinth begin to create rumors about Paul. Some say that he wasn't an apostle. Some say that his view of God actually hurt the Corinthians because he believed that because they believed that any suffering, any form of suffering was evil, and if Paul suffered, therefore he was evil. Imagine you're Paul. Imagine you've given everything that you have to a group of people. Most of the believers in the church of Corinth, Paul would have likely led them to Christ personally. But they've turned their back on you. And they would have doubted whether or not you were truly from God. How would that make you feel? And then you had a chance to write them a letter. What would that letter be like? I don't want to know what my letter would be like, all right? I have a a few examples of situations like this. When I first planted, when I first moved here to plant Integrity Church, we had a small group of people that we were gathered and we started meeting at Walcott Elementary, and I had this guy who, he, he was in seminary, and he came here. He said, man, I feel like the Lord is leading me to move here, and uh, I want to do ministry, and I want you to disciple me in ministry. I'm like, okay. So I began to meet with this guy one-on-one, and we began to walk through Scripture, and there was just some glaring immaturity that was happening in his life. Helped the guy find a job, got him connected to the community. But as he's interacting with people, he's condescending, he's rude, he's kind of insulting people. So I begin to challenge him, man, your tone is just not not healthy the way you communicate. So, you know, I like, I did the thing where you've got to go back to people and apologize, man. This is how it came off. So he did the thing like where, I'm sorry you misunderstand me apology, which is not really an apology, but it sounds like one, but it's not one. And so he did that whole thing. And then, you know, I mean, walking through and and I just kept saying, man, you know, and, and then he just stopped showing up. He wouldn't 
he would say he was on a volunteer team. He wouldn't show up. He, he would just stop coming to a small group. He wasn't committing uh, regularly to the local church. And I said, man, look, if, if you can't commit to the simple things, I, I just can't commit to discipling you, meeting with you one-on-one. And so I just told him, I was like, I was very kind. I was very gracious. I said, man, I just don't see this just working out. I mean, you know, if, if you want to commit to discipleship, I'm going to have to see more from you. I just can't do it right now. And he just kind of did this whole, he sent me an email, it was long. Well, here's a lot of the reasons, oh, I can't, you know, and, and, and this happened and this happened. That's why I can't do this. And it was just all these explanations. I said, man, I just, I, I just don't feel right about it. I just don't feel right about it. And then his next message to me was like, Ben, comma. I was like, uh-oh, you know, like, and then it was like, you are, you are arrogant. You are, you think you're better than me. And he just lit me, I mean, upside down in every way. I mean, just every single angle, Right. And then at the very end, he put, by the way, you are a, all caps, bold letter, beep, beep. And then he put, in Christ, his name. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, in Christ, okay, I got your, in I was like, I went right at it. Like, I was like, I had two sentences already ready, and they were zingers. Like, I'm a preacher. Like, you know, like the Holy Spirit comes upon me in emails sometimes, and I'm just kidding. And so I felt like, oh, roar, I'm going to light this guy up for the gospel's sake. Um, and then I'm, I'm working there, and we're in uh, a coffee shop. I'm there with Jake's across the way from me. Jake was working with me at the time, and he said, he was just, and he looks at me, he goes, uh, you should wait. 24 hours before you send that message. And I was like, you're right, you're right. All right, I won't respond. And I deleted what I had. It was so good. Um, I deleted it. I waited 24 hours. And that, my, my response was much better, but I was still like, oh, that punk. Like, just want to see this guy and talk to him about this. You know, I was still like angry and worked up. And so this was my response. And that and that was just a short time. Maybe I met with this guy 10 times and I was frustrated, I was hurt. Imagine Paul, though. Paul did even more from this church than I did for that guy. Paul gave his life to these people. He spent six months of his life writing to them or, 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 or discipling them, growing in the gospel. And then he would spend more letters that he's written to any church he's written to the church of Corinth. And then he hears at the very end, some people don't even know if you're real, Paul. Some of these people don't even think you're a real apostle. Some of these people, they don't even know if you're, about, if you're with Jesus, if you're like the same kind of person like Jesus was. Some of these people are doubting all of that. Some of these people are even doubting the legitimacy of the gospel. And so here's what Paul does as he writes this letter. This is why he starts it the way that he does, defending his apostleship. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't have to defend himself. Rather, what Paul does is he brings them back to the why of apostleship. He brings them back to the why of his ministry, and actually, he brings them back to the why of his entire, entire existence. And what is that? It's to be made new in Christ. And so Paul opens this letter, seemingly defending his apostleship, but he does so not to, appoint, not to point the attention to himself. Rather, he does so to appoint to put the attention on Christ. Notice, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And there were several qualifications that it meant to be a legit apostle. And often people would try to pin one of these on Paul. And 
one of the qualifications for you to be an apostle was that you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus after his resurrection. So Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and there were disciples who saw Jesus after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven. Those were 11 disciples, and people were said, okay, well, Paul wasn't one of those 11, so he can't really truly be an apostle. Paul wasn't there. And so if they can make Paul's apostleship seem phony or fake, they could also do the same thing with his message. And although Paul wasn't there with his disciples, it doesn't mean that he wasn't an apostle. Because here's the thing, Paul did see Jesus after his resurrection. And we see that, I'm going to show you one place in Acts 9. Acts 9, the Apostle Paul is called at this time Saul. He was a uh, persecutor of the church, hated Christianity, and he's trying to stop the gospel. He's trying to stop the church from advancing. Acts 9 says in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for a letter in the synagogues at Damascus. So if, that, if they found any belonging to the way, that's how people were described in the early church. The early church was called the way. Christians were called the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, uh-oh, you worried about him yet? A light from heaven shone around him and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. See the interaction? After Jesus died and rose from the grave, this is him approaching Paul. So listen, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. By the way, that's every sinner. You have to acknowledge that your sin offends God. You're persecuting me is what Jesus is saying. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who, travel, who were traveling along with him stood speechless, hearing his voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now this is the first time Jesus interacts with Paul, and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And what happens, this arrogant, proud hater of the church is now humbled and he's brought to his knees. And now his followers are leading him around like a hopeless and powerless being. And then we even pick up in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Good name for a street. It was was more simple back then. Um, At the house of Judah, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind us all who call on your name. Now, I want you to imagine you're in the early church and you're Ananias here. You're told that the number one persecutor of the church, the number one terrorist of the church is coming to your house and you're supposed to help him. It's like God telling you, hey, a member of ISIS is coming into town and I want you to open up your home for them. Embrace them with open arms. Have the cookies out. Make the pot roast. Bring that person into your home. It sounds insane, right? But let me show you what the Lord says to him next. Because this is, this is the essence of why Paul was legit. This is the essence of what God's going to say next about Paul is to show you why he was truly an apostle. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Ananias... Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Don't miss this in the text. What does the Lord say about Paul? He's mine. My chosen instrument, this one right here, the persecutor of the church, the one who seems so far gone, there's no way the gospel could ever change his life. No, 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 that one's mine. That's, that's my boy. That's the one that's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This one is mine. So why could Paul defend his apostleship in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1? It's because God says he's mine. I'm his. I belong to him. So what is he saying in 2 Corinthians? Listen, you can, you can, don't, don't, it's not about my title, but don't discredit where I came from. God says I am his. God says I am a chosen instrument for his glory. And so this is why he says it in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is where Paul lands when defending his apostleship. It's not what others say about him. It's what God says about him. That's what really matters. And by the way, believer, this is our comfort. We're comforted in the fact that salvation does not rest on us. Rather, it rests upon Christ and his finished work. And that's where Paul goes next with the church of Corinth. Look in verse 3. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. These are the first lines that Paul communicates to the the church at Corinth. Why is he doing that? He's bringing the church at Corinth back where they lost sight, back to the gospel. And he's saying, church at Corinth, it's not about what the city thinks of you. Yeah, they think you're weird because you don't practice all their immoral acts. 
Yeah, they think you're weird because you believe in the worship of one God, not many. Yeah, they think you're weird because you, you believe in this resurrected Christ who came from a virgin and lived a perfect sinless life. Yeah, they think you're, you're a little off. They think you're a little weird. But listen, it doesn't matter what this culture thinks of you. It's really what God thinks of you. And let me bring you back to the very beginning so you can see exactly what God thinks of these people in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is where the Lord is communicating with Paul. Paul's praying and he's asking the Lord, how long should I stay here in Corinth as it's beginning? And in Acts chapter 8, the Lord shows up to Paul in a dream. And he says this in Acts 8 verse 8. He says, it says, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, he said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. And this is what he says about the Corinthian church. Now listen, for I have many in this city who are my people. What motivates Paul? What motivates Paul to evangelize is he knows that God has people in the city that belong to him, that will call upon the name of the Lord, that will repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. Paul has this confidence because he says, in the same way that God went after me and chose me and bought me, he's going to do the very same thing in Corinth, in, in Corinth because he said he would. And that gives him incredible, incredible confidence. So how does Paul build their confidence, he reminds them of the God of comfort. How are we comforted? We're reminded of our identity. So how does Paul defend his discipleship? He says, it's not what others say about me. It's what God says about me. When it comes to the church of Corinth being mocked and ridiculed and influenced because they were trying to be different, it's not what others say about you. It's what God says about you. What does God say about you? I have people in the city who are mine. And listen, I don't know where you are on the whole debate of predestination or election. People have been debating this for hundreds of years. However, I will say that you cannot neglect it altogether because those words are actually in the Bible. Like predestination, election, those are biblical words. You can't escape biblical words. But wherever you are on the spectrum, don't miss this importance. Before you were born, he said, you're mine. You were mine. Before you even were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, you're mine. That's that you belong to me. I'm going to send my son to die in your place. You belong to me. There's this incredible show, and I've mentioned it like 10 times already. Um, this is Us. I've mentioned that already. Um, you should watch it. Um, and it's, it's an incredible show. I've been watching it with my wife, and we've been following along with it, and um, basically, it's, it's about a white family who had uh, twins, and they adopted a third child who is an African-American who uh, he did not have parents, and his name is Randall. I'm trying to do my best to communicate this without spoiling it, all right? Um, and as Randall, this African-American boy, grew up in this white family with twins, he grew up struggled with his identity. And here's one of the things I love about the show— Finally, a show that highlights a good dad. Most shows have terrible dads. This actually has a show, it's a show with a good dad. 
And the dad is trying to figure out how to interact with his two twins that belong to him and his adopted African-American son. He's trying to figure out creative ways to, okay, how do I make them feel like they're all my children? And later on in Randall's life, he's in his 30s, and he's struggling with identity, and he's like, he's trying to figure out where his place is in the family, his place is in the world. And he has this vision, he has this memory of his father who goes up to him, and he embraces him, he holds him by the arms, super tight, shoulders super tight, and looks at him dead in the eye, and he says, Randall, you are mine. And I'm watching this. I haven't watched one episode without crying, but I'm like. <laughs> and then look over, and my, my wife's a little tougher than me, and she's got like tears. She's like, don't look at me. You know, like, I would do that. And I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, that's so. But then after I wept from that, and then I started thinking vertically. And there was a part of me that wanted to shut my laptop, because no one sits in their living room anymore. They all watch on laptops now. Shut my laptop. Stand on my bed and raise my arms and say, yes, that's exactly what God did for me. He grabbed me by the shoulders and he looked at me dead in the eye and said, when you're struggling with your identity, when you're struggling with what people say about you, what people want you to be or all these things, just remember, you're mine. You belong to me, Ben. Before you were born, I said, that boy right there is my son, And I loved him so much that I sent my one and only son to die on the cross on his behalf. And so I don't know how messed up you are, but you need to know this. Like, me personally, I, I believe that this is the foundation of so many things. I've had in my life a good deal of biblical counseling. My wife and I both, by the grace of God, have submitted our lives to biblical counseling and saved our marriage, helped us grow in Christ. And um, I've done a lot of biblical counseling as a pastor, walked through hard issues with people. I love doing it. It's one of my joys. And uh, I've actually done, uh, done internships with biblical counseling centers. And, and here's what I learned. Everything stems here. Your identity in Christ, everything stems from right here. Because here's the thing, I don't care how screwed up people are when they come and talk to me, I can bring them all back here. In order for them to get healthy, they have to arrive at some point or begin at some point here, before you were born. He said you were his. And he didn't save you based on this future, put together version of you, no, no, no. He saved you based on how you are even when you were born, when you were born, when you were at war with God. He said, no, 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 you're mine before all that. He looked at your sins, past, current, and future, still sent his son to die for you. Still said, you're mine. You belong to me. So this is his grace. This is his love. You're his. So Integrity Church... We're not what others say we are. We're not even what we say we are. We're all, all the, only, the only thing that matters is what matters to Paul is that you are only what God says you, you are. And if we could just live in that freedom, it would change everything about the way we live. 
We wouldn't fear man as much as we do. We wouldn't lie as much as we do. We wouldn't create a false version of ourselves. Social media, we present a perfect life or a perfect family so we can get enough likes or applause from human beings to say, well done, you've done such a great job being an awesome person. We wouldn't put our energy trying to prove ourselves to others as much as we do. We would just rest and say, you know what? It doesn't matter what people think. All that matters is that I am his and he is mine. So without Christ, we're sinners in desperate need of a savior. Only because of Christ, you belong to your father because of the finished work of what Christ has done on the cross. And so if we talk about being made new, this is, this is the foundation of what it means to be made new. It means that you, we would be different as a church. We'd be a different community. We'd be different than the church at Corinth where their identity was swayed by the trends of culture and the pressures around them. May, be, may we be as Integrity Church, a community of believers whose identity is in what Christ has accomplished for us. That the world may see a people who were truly made new. God help us. Let's pray.